0: going to happen. Stand by playback. And now. Uh, lies. Real red meat radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio.
1: More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women.
0: Lars.
2: Our beloved republic it's in the hands of madmen. This
0: is a dark day. Now, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my
3: 67 Corvette, and my cat.
0: Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and emails. Do you remember... About a half a dozen years ago, you had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is not exactly the sharpest tool in the shed, I think, by most people's estimates. But she made the public declaration why, if we don't change things with regards to global warming, why the entire planet is going to come to an end in about a dozen years. Now, I don't think that statement of hers is going to age very well, but I don't think we even have to wait the full 12 years to find out. But it seems as though people like her, who are pushing the idea that human beings, and especially the ones who happen to live uh, on on uh, in the United States of America, in other words, a very tiny percentage of the Earth's entire population, have to make dramatic changes in the way that we live, in the way that we use energy, and if we don't, the entire world is going to hell in a handbasket. Okay, you may believe that. I don't happen to believe that. So... I thought we'd examine this a bit. I I, I think that they're beginning to sound more and more desperate all the time. I'm seeing headlines that say we're about to reach a tipping point in the next couple of years and that the whole planet is going to be in big trouble at that point. Of course, we've been hearing predictions like that since literally the 1960s about acid rain, about ozone, about global warming, about global cooling, about another ice age. I mean, the list goes on and on. So. I, thought I'd, I really look forward to talking to Gregory Wrightstone, who's a geologist and the executive director of the CO2 Coalition in Arlington, Virginia, the best-selling author most recently of the book, A Very Convenient Warming, How Modest Warming and More CO2 Are Actually Benefiting Humanity. Mr. Wrightstone, welcome to the program, or should I call you doctor?
1: No, 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 not doctor. Uh, you know, uh, the new book, A Very Convenient Warming, is is available for pre-publication sales at convenientwarming.com. So uh, we'll be shipping them out hopefully in three weeks or so. So uh, it's, it's a completely different narrative from what AOC and the others are promoting. Uh, Go ahead, sir. We, we see by almost every metric I look at, we've marched well beyond uh, there is no climate crisis and that's factual. There is no climate crisis. When I've, for sp- gone to really is by looking we see that modest warming and more co2 are benefiting earth's ecosystems and humanity by almost every metric uh, our ecosystems are thriving and prospering uh, the things we're being told just aren't so deserts are actually shrinking forests are expanding we're, we're experiencing reforestation not deforestation uh Droughts are shrinking, and the big, big story is this huge benefit we're seeing in crop growth. It's vegetation of all types, but uh, agricultural production is breaking records year after year and country after country. Uh, In the book, I take a look at the eight top crops uh, that are being produced in the world by tonnage, um, and each one of those eight, if you see it, it's amazing, just breaking records year after year, and we can attribute that to the combination of modest warming. Now, bear in mind, it is warming. We're in a warming trend and have been in for more than 300 years. The first 250, of course, are natural. Uh, but that warming trend means we've got longer growing seasons. Uh, since 1900, the growing, length of the growing season in the lower 48 in the United States has increased by two weeks. So that means we get more plantings in. Uh, killing frosts end earlier in the spring, arrive later, in the fall that's turbocharged with more carbon dioxide which is fueling plant growth that's that's plant food and then on top of that we've got um, nitrogen fertilizer has been huge uh, for agricultural production and that's cons- they make nitrogen fertilizer from fossil fuels and so all these things combined these three things are driving uh, agricultural production so Agricultural production is outpacing population growth significantly. That's and good now thing. they're trying
3: to suggest to us that we can't use uh, petrochemical-created uh, fertilizers because they're saying, no, these, these are bad for the environment. They're attacking the very fertilizers that, as I understand the numbers, and maybe you've got better ones, if we didn't use petrochemical fertilizers and mechanized planting and harvesting, we wouldn't be able to feed nearly as many people as we do right now, would we?
1: Yeah, from the book... Uh, the nitrogen-based fertilizer was called the Haber-Bosch process, developed in the early 1900s. Uh, but they, they during, during World War II, most of the nitrogen that was created with that was used in, uh, uh, in the war effort for bombs and things. And so after World War II is when we started using huge amounts of nitrogen fertilizer. It's estimated that somewhere around 30% of the crop growth we've seen uh, over the last 60, 70, 80 years can be attributed to nitrogen-based fertilizers. And, again, that, those are fossil fuel-derived. Mostly natural gas uh, are used uh, in the construction of, or creation of, of nitrogen fertilizers. Uh, and we saw what happened recently in Sri Lanka, uh, where President Rajapaksy instituted this uh, anti-fertilizer, nitrogen-based fertilizer campaign. And the agricultural-based community of Sri Lanka just collapsed he barely escaped with his life um, and the whole whole agricultural system collapsed. And what the, what we're really looking at here is an anti-human agenda. Uh, of course, everything relates to crop growth. We have to eat to survive, uh, and we're seeing this great p- increase in production. What they're doing and what they're proposing is going to harm crop growth and uh Dr. William Happer is chairman of the CO2 Coalition. He, he, and Dr. Richard Lindzen have written a recent study a uh, paper with us that they're claiming if they go through with these, what they're planning to do, millions of people will die uh, because of the famines that will be created. And these make the mistake; these are these. What they're doing is intentional. Um, not only are, what they are going to do is raise our electricity and energy prices, but they're going to uh, reduce crop and, cro- and agricultural production. That's horrible. Horrible.
3: And It is. It's, and, it's and, cr- and the thing is, we may not see famines in America. I guess we could. But worldwide, America exports a tremendous amount of, of product, of, of agriculture, don't we?
1: We do. And uh, the other thing we look at, too, uh, what I love to look at is the strong relationship between human history and climate history. In the past, when it got cold, before it's just opposite of what we're being told. We're being told fear the heat. Uh, no, no. History tells us welcome the warmth, fear the cold, because each of the past cold periods were horrific, and each each one of these cold periods were associated with crop failure, famine, pestilence, and nasty population. And when it does get colder, it's gonna it's not going to be as bad as it was in the previous cold periods. The little ice age, the, the dark ages and things, because we're, we're moving food around. We're not moving around by ox cart. and We've got refrigeration. But still, we're going to see crop failure, even here in the United States.
3: Absolutely. That's uh, Gregory Wrightstone. He's a geologist, executive director of the CO2 Coalition in Arlington, Virginia. The book is called A Very Convenient Warming, A Modest Warming and More CO2 Benefit of Humanity back in a moment. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show.
0: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. For real red meat radio, The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I've got to disclose I own guns. I believe in the Second Amendment. So should the personal question of your personal history When it comes to domestic violence, should that dictate absolutely whether or not you're allowed to own guns or to be able to buy a gun? Well, the Supreme Court is going to soon decide that question. And uh, Jim Burling joins me now, Vice President of Legal Affairs for Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you again, Lars. So if I've outlined it right, you know, we've always understood when I fill out the form 4473 to buy a firearm, and I've done it dozens of times, it asks, "Have are you the subject of a restraining order, stalking order, uh, have you ever been convicted of domestic violence? I'm able, thankfully, to say no to all of that. But should we absolutely prohibit anybody who has that in his or her background from buying or owning a firearm?
4: And, and that could be a tough case, and it's a tough case across the board, and particularly tough in this case. It was argued yesterday because it dealt with an individual named Zaki Ramini, and nobody disputes that he is not a Boy Scout. He is not a model citizen. He got into a dispute with a girlfriend, a witness who is witnessing the dispute, uh, uh, was looking at them, and Rahimi fired a gun at him. Missed, but fired the gun. And so based on that, a court issued, a state court issued a domestic violence restraining order against Rahimi saying you shouldn't have any guns. Well, he pretty much ignored that. He fired a gun into the home of somebody who was buying drugs from him because apparently the drug deal didn't go over well. He had a road rage incident where he fired a gun at somebody. Didn't hit anybody this time, but he was firing a gun. Uh, he was in a Whataburger drive-through line and the, they wouldn't have accept a friend's credit card, so he fired a AR-15 into the air there. Uh, clearly not the sort of person that we want to have a gun hanging around. And no so kidding. he was eventually convicted of a 1994 federal law, which makes it a felony for anybody, and that's anybody subject to a domestic violence order of possessing a gun. So the question is, Should that be a constitutional—is that constitutional? And the reason why the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans said it was not constitutional, because when the Second Amendment was adopted back in 1791, there were no such things as domestic violence restraining orders. The only people who could be prohibited from having guns were those who were considered to be mentally defective or children. Uh, Other than that, anybody could have a gun. And based on that, the Fifth Circuit said this was unconstitutional. And that was what the court was looking at yesterday.
3: Well, uh, does that include somebody convicted of a felony? Historically, at the time of the creation of the Second Amendment, was having a felony on your record uh, sufficient to uh, prohibit you from owning a gun?
4: Not necessarily, uh, because there are all kinds of felonies. Now, somebody who is declared to be particularly dangerous uh, might have a restriction on owning a gun if they were also mentally defective. But, of course, the domestic violence restraining order applies to all kinds of people who are not necessarily dangerous. There are hearings where you're supposed to see if you are likely to commit a crime. But there are many states that just routinely issue these domestic violence restraining orders based on a he said, she said sort of argument. And uh, these are people then that can't own a gun to go hunting or have any other lawful activity with a gun. So the law doesn't distinguish people bet- like Mr. Rahimi, who clearly is outside the norm, and an ordinary law-abiding citizen who gets into a domestic dispute with a former with a spouse or a former spouse. So that's part of the question here. How broad is this law? And there should be the opportunity for some people to find that they are not subject to it. And, now and I think that, the court was pretty.
3: But, but right now, even if a judge were so inclined, a judge couldn't say, "Look, I've looked at your record. I looked at what you, you know, were what what you were subject to then. But I've also looked at your life since then, and I've decided I'm going to restore your ability to own a gun." Uh, no judge can do that right now under the current set of rules, can they?
4: Well, under the current set of rules, as long as that domestic violence restraining order is there or even subject to it, you can't own a gun. And so the initial decision of whether or not to impose this domestic violence restraining order is really, really important. And it's not taken all that seriously by courts. They're in a hurry. They have lots of cases before them. And it's much easier just to issue this order to Avoid any possibility of anything happening because no judge wants blood on his or her hands by not issuing an order. So the error on the side of caution to issue this order, which can have a long-term consequences for a a person under federal law, because the there's there's law law not, not even a time is-
3: limit on it, is there? I mean, if in other words, and and you and I have been both using the male pronoun he, uh, and because it probably does for the most part apply to men, but there are also women. Who uh, you know get in a fight with with their husband, their spouse, or boyfriend, slap him across the face in front of children. In many states, that amplifies the offense. And if it and if and if a court were to look at that, they say we're going to issue a domestic violence. Rest- or we're going to issue that against the woman, you know, because it's a point in time when she's twenty, when she's fifty, and wants to own a gun. That thing is still sitting there, prohibiting her from ever owning a gun for the rest of her life. For let's say a pretty hard slap across the face thirty years before, have I overstated that?
4: No, I think that can be perfectly accurate in many cases, and so yes, yeah, somebody could have this thing hanging over their head for their entire lives if, if that's the, if that's what happens. And it, it does seem that the the court, however, was very skeptical of Rahimi's arguments. And nobody had raised that issue in particular during the oral argument. Now, there are a lot of amicus briefs that were going back and forth. But an oral argument, they were looking at, well, what should the test be? Does the history and tradition allow this sort of prohibition to go into place? Uh, Is it based on whether somebody is declared to be dangerous or just not a responsible citizen? or a law-abiding responsible citizen. So the court was getting into nitty-gritty details that we're not looking at the larger picture. Uh, So it's going to be really difficult to know what the court's going to do. But frankly, I think the court's inclined to uphold this, perhaps allow people to have an individual determination uh, whether or not they have reformed themselves enough, whether there's some kind of due process that comes to them. But only Justice Gorsuch was going along those lines. The the other all the other justices seem to be a little concerned about uh, throwing out
3: the law that would benefit somebody like Mr. Rahimi. OK, I'm talking to J- uh, Jim Burling, who's at Pacific Legal Foundation, because it, it, it occurs to me that. You know, I get into this debate with my listeners all the time. They'll say, well, uh, constitutional rights are are absolute. And I said, no, they're not. They're subject to time, place, and manner. But, the re- but it's supposed to be narrowly tailored so that you write a law and you say, okay, there are going to be some restrictions, but w- we have to make it narrowly tailored so that it's exactly what is necessary, you know, to preserve the peace. Uh, and maybe restrict your rights here or there or the other place. Um, Narrowly tailored doesn't say any time any domestic violence restraining order is ever issued against anybody, they then have a lifetime prohibition on the Second Amendment, on exercise of the Second Amendment. That doesn't sound narrowly tailored at all, Jim, and I'm not a lawyer.
4: No, you're not a lawyer, but you have common sense, which is unfortunately something that a lot of (laughs) legislators lack. So, yeah, we have this broad, broad band. Uh, no way of getting out from underneath it. And that may be too far, but this particular case is more about Rahimi. Yes, it was an attack on the law writ large, an attack on the law being unconstitutional as applied to everybody. But as I said, the court seemed to be very, very concerned about this particular individual who was clearly dangerous. At one time, Justice Roberts said, you don't have any doubt that your client's dangerous, do you? He said that to the attorney for the uh, Mr. Rahimi. And Rahimi and, and the attorney's response is, well, that kind of depends on what you mean by dangerous. And Robert said, well, it could mean if you point a gun at somebody and fire it, uh, as Mr. Rahimi had done. So it wasn't going well for uh, the Mr. Rahimi's attorney at oral argument.
3: That is Jim Burling. He is vice president at Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, I appreciate
0: it. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. brutal honesty whether you like it or not with lars larson you're listening to the best of the lars larson show
3: welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you on a tuesday always glad to get your calls at 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com and our twitter poll today written fresh out of the news of the day Representative Don Beyer, member of Congress in Virginia, a member of the Tax Writing, House Ways and Means Committee, wants to impose a 1,000% excise tax on semi-automatic rifles. So a $700 AR-15 would cost you $7,700 at the end of the taxes. Now, I don't think that's going to go anywhere But it is one of the crazy questions. Should Congress put a 1,000% tax on so called assault rifles, meaning every semi automatic rifle made in America or sold in America? I would say no to that, but you can vote any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I always believed in, so I joined years ago. You can join too. It's easy. Just go to amac.us or call aaa 262 2006 Amax better. Better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday's poll asked, is Joe Biden lifting tariffs on Chinese solar panels because I gave you two options. It's good for America, and ten percent of you voted for that. Uh because he's bought and paid for by Beijing. Ninety percent in the Twitter poll answered that way. You can answer our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show or at LarsLarson.com. Now I want to get to college. I have nothing against college. In fact, maybe someday my uh, granddaughter Payson will end up going to college, and chances are Grandpa will end up funding it. Uh, I'm not going to go into debt. I didn't go into debt. When I went to college, I paid as I went. Now you say, but college is a lot more expensive these days. It's expensive because it's being subsidized by the taxpayers. Now, it doesn't matter what you plan to study. It doesn't matter whether you're going to get a degree that actually has some value like a degree in accounting or nursing or a lawyer or a doctor or something you can actually put to good use. And you don't hear most of those people complaining about their college debts. Typically, the people who complain about their college debts are people who got a degree in women's studies, ethnic studies, this studies, that studies. A good clue for parents is if your son or daughter comes to you and says, listen, I wanted to get a degree in XYZ studies, tell them to go back and think it over again. Because you're not going to pay for it. And frankly, I think anybody who wants to go to college should be able to do that. If they want to pay on their own dime, I don't care what they study. They could study beetle tracking or button sorting or making bayberry candles, to quote my one of my favorite authors, Robert Heinlein. But now the White House decision on student loan forgiveness, we're told, is unlikely to come until later in the summer. I think that's being politically timed. Because Joe Biden has decided that even if he's a terrible president with approval ratings below those even of the president he described as the worst president in American history, Donald Trump, who is was the best president of this century, um, that he probably plans to try to push that out in late August, early September in time for the election. There are 40 million Americans who have student loan debt. And as I said, if you got a worthwhile degree, you should have no problem paying it back. I usually give the example of nurses. Go out and borrow, borrow fifty or sixty thousand dollars and get a nursing degree. When the private sector is ready to hire you for fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year straight out of college, and you owe fifty thousand dollars in debts and have a five hundred dollar payment, it's not a bad deal. You know, when you make $5,000 a month as a nurse at the starting wages and you have to pay $500 to pay off your student loans, it's a very good investment. On the other hand, if you got one of those degrees that has you asking, would you like uh, some whipped cream on your latte, probably not the right choice that you made. Tom Cotton has talked about this when it comes to the ethics of this. Take a listen to what he had to say.
5: You wrote a letter to the White House about uh, their effort to potentially uh, reduce uh, student loan debt, federal student loan debt, uh, but you have a concern about ethics.
3: Yeah, Brett, at a time when the president is talking about canceling $10,000 of student loan debt for any American who has it, he has numerous White House aides who actually have student loan debt who are working on this matter in violation of his own ethics guidance. That's inappropriate. Yeah, more than inappropriate. When you say you can't go to work at the White House if you would personally benefit, and then you've got aides working for you who say, gee, the boss may be about to erase a bunch of my debt. Except that people always talk about erasing debt. There's no such thing. You can forgive debt. That means if the person who loaned you the money, like grandma or grandpa or mom or dad, says, Remember when I loaned you 10 grand to go to school? Well, forget about the debt. You don't owe me anymore. If a person wants to do that, that's an act of charity. If you had a family friend who said, if you're going to college, I'm willing to pay part of the bill. If they did it as a gift to you, that's fine. When you take it out of the pockets of the roughly 65% of Americans who have never sat in a college classroom, and they got no benefit, they got no four years of tailgate parties and fraternity parties and hanging out on campus for four years, and you want them to pay your loan debt, that's just dead wrong. So Senator Tom Cotton talks about, What should happen when it comes to repayment? Listen to this. What about all those kids who went to college and worked during college and didn't take out loans, or they paid their loans back, or the vast majority of Americans who don't have a college degree, who work as waiters and waitresses or truck drivers or have a small lawn care business? They didn't take out loans, and now we're going to ask them to repay the loans of people who did go to school and who agreed to repay them? That is deeply unfair. The president shouldn't do it. He certainly shouldn't have aides who are going to benefit from it working on the matter. Yeah, absolutely right. And cotton is dead, dead straight on that. The fact is, is that if you want to go to college, figure out if it's worth it. And I've suggested this before. I'm going to keep on suggesting. I started suggesting it a little over 25 years ago. And here's my suggestion. In high school, at least by your sophomore year, maybe by your freshman year in high school, I think an easy exercise to do and you could do it as a piece of homework for every high school kid. Ask the kids at the beginning, let's say, at the beginning of an hour. You could spend an hour on class on this and then send it home as homework. I would make up a form. It would say, my name is Lars Larson. When I grow up, I'd like to be a, and then fill in the blank. You want to be a nurse, an accountant, an engineer. Uh, you want to do uh, computer coding or whatever. Write that in. Then say, to be able to do that, I need a degree in fill-in-the-blank. And for that, I propose that I'm going to go to, and then put down the names of three schools. Encourage the kids. If you're really want to shoot for the moon and you want to go to an Ivy League school for whatever reason, a lot of indoctrination there, but go ahead, put that down. Put down Stanford, and then put down maybe your state college, and then maybe put down a community college. When I get my degree and I become a whatever it was you said you wanted to be, uh, the average starting wage in that profession is and have them look it up. It's available on the internet. You can find out what the typical nurse makes, what the typical engineer makes, what the typical person with an you know, women's studies degree makes. Write all that in and then write in the cost of each of those colleges. Now maybe one of them is uh, $300,000 for four years. I think Stanford Stanford can, I, I think Stanford runs several hundred thousand dollars to go to four years. Write in the total cost. And then say, and here's where you, again, fill in the blanks, say, when I get that degree, uh, I'm going to pay off the money this way. I'm going to take this much from mom and dad, this much from grandma and grandpa, this much from working in the summer, and this much from student loans. And then figure out what the loan amount is going to be. And compare the final salary, compare that final salary, and how much you're going to make per month to the amount of money you're going to obligate yourself to. I once talked to a guy on this show. Who, uh, he said, I've got a huge amount of student debt. And this was like 15 years ago. I said, How much? He said, 150,000. I said, What'd you get a degree in? He says, I have a PhD in childhood education and percussion. I said, You can teach kids how to play the drums? Does that pay enough to pay back 150 grand? And you all know the answer to that. Back in just a moment.
0: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show.
3: It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. You can email talk at Lars dot com. And every once in a while, I get emails from people who raise an important issue, whether I agree with them or not. I'm glad to have them on the program. But I've done just that here. But first, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism before I get to this subject, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, you can certainly go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And the other way you have to participate, our Twitter poll question every day, should Oregon and Washington lawmakers call emergency special sessions of the legislature to fix the drug overdose problem and the laws that contain it or don't contain it as the case may be today's twitter poll is brought to you by ultimate truck services if you rely on trucks for business ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right find them at ultimate truck on friday first amendment friday our question was this should america's big cities have to drop their sanctuary status for illegal aliens to get bailout money from congress Interesting split decision. 58% of you said yes, I took that side of it. But 42% of you said no. In other words, we should give big cities like uh, New York or Seattle or Portland bailout money because of their illegal alien problems created by Joe Biden. They should get the money and they should still be able to have laws in place that protect the status of uh of illegal aliens doesn't make any sense to me but there it is an interesting decision so I get this note Lawrence have you heard about the controversy brewing in North Clark County over the Chilachi Railroad well Eric Hughes knows all about it, and he joins me now he emailed me hey Eric welcome to the program hi Lawrence great to be with you so I, I'm glad to have you on. So you're concerned because you said there's a plan to mine aggregate. Aggregate is what they use to make concrete, which is the basis for every bit of building that anybody does anywhere in the Northwest, whether it's a, a house or a commercial operation. You've got to have aggregate, and they're having to haul it in from farther away. What are they planning to do on the uh, Chalachi Bluff? Well,
6: there there's a... Plan to uh, create an open pit mine there to mine the chalatchee bluff anybody who's seen it knows that that uh, that hill's basically all rock and uh, there's concerns raised about the legality of the zoning process that was done by clark county they created a a special overlay surface mining overlay and uh, basically rubber stamped the required environmental protection act from the state uh, as far as what they're supposed to do on that so when they rubber stamped it went through They were challenged, and uh, the state came back and told, no, you can't just uh, make a change on a map. You have to do the environmental analysis before that's being done. That was brought to the county's attention. They were told even by the the county lawyers, my understanding, that the the change was most likely illegal and that they potentially risked uh, state funding if they remained in noncompliance with uh, SEPA, the State Environmental Protection Act. And the county voted uh, to just ignore those recommendations and keep that in there uh, with the anticipation that uh, granite construction was going to be starting a mine in that in that area
3: and you don't want them to do it is your objection the environmental end of it or is your objection because you you don't want them hauling aggregate out of this big pit somewhere near your home or business
6: that's my major objection and and uh my my concern in this respect is the the legality of the, i you know, I'm all for an environmental protection when it's when it's reasonable. And um, my main thing is, is the legality of the county making these zoning changes without the proper authority. I don't like the mine. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like the idea of having a mine as close as I'm going to be to that. I think there's other environmental and potentially harmful things that may be going on. But if that happens, it happens. I'm all for doing things legally. But that's my concern with the, the mine itself.
3: I guess my concern is I've seen so many projects that get stopped when the state of Washington, state of Oregon says, we don't like this, and so we're going to stop it any way we possibly can. And then they create Mm -hmm. structures where it makes it almost impossible to do these things, which people think have no consequence. I'd point out that... Like Los Angeles County, which is in much worse shape than, than the, anybody, anywhere in the Northwest, they literally haul aggregate in from hundreds of miles away. Some of it's literally barged in from Alaska. And you say, well, okay, too bad. Well, too bad until you're the person building the house. Or trying to build a building or, or you want to get a job at the company that needs to build a building to have the job. And you say, I'm sorry, we can't build that big building because the economics of hauling in aggregate from a long, long ways away just don't pencil out. So guess what? We'll go somewhere else. I'm, I'm concerned that there are those collateral damage items that come when you, when you write up rules that are so tight that you just essentially can't do it anymore.
6: I I would generally agree with you of course. I, I I think those are excellent points. My concern specifically with this area is with the destruction of the the watershed that's gonna happen there at Shalachie Creek with doing this and then the disturbance of some other potentially contaminated soils from the previous uh lumber yard that was right next to the area. And so I I think I think I would I would definitely agree with you on the price of aggregate. I'd I'd love to personally get aggregate a lot cheaper than i have to buy it right now um i just think this area might not be the best choice and i don't like the fact that the county appears to be circumventing these these environmental uh, protections
3: well i guess my concern is if they're you tell me they're planning to mine 1.3 million tons of aggregate there nobody mines something unless they think they can sell it I would imagine yes. they, they already have identified a marketplace for it. And if it doesn't come from there, it has come from somewhere else. But I'm also aware that I think Eugene has tied things up so well in the state of Oregon that they're they're hauling an aggregate from a long, long ways away. And the cost of, of doing everything becomes prohibitive. I mean, to the point where people say, well, you have to pay more. Well, in some cases, projects may not may not make sense at all. And then we turn around and hear the leaders, so called leaders from both states, saying, Hey, we don't have enough housing. Build more housing. Well, Eric, I don't know about you, but every every bit of housing I'm aware of is built with a basis of concrete. You know, that you know, whether you're building with wood or something else, you gotta build it on a concrete foundation. Well, get the yeah. concrete. Well, we don't have the aggregate. Sorry, can't. And the money and, and the money isn't there. Yeah, so how I, do we resolve that? that? I, uh,
6: obviously there's there's mining and 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 like i said to to kind of reiterate while i don't like the idea of the mine in my so to speak backyard uh i know that there's a need for aggregate and if it's going to happen it's going to happen i don't have to be happy about it but i understand the benefit i would just prefer that the county went about it in the in the legal you know legally and and doing the reviews that, that should be done to make sure that when this does happen that, you know, the streams are not impacted disproportionately and the groundwater is not contaminated. And, or they and fix of the problem.
3: Nature. Right. Or or they correct whatever it is. I mean, because every bit of mining yeah. takes some does some kind of damage You say, well, you're going to have to fix the damage once you're done. Uh, OK, if it's fixable. But if you're, you're right, yeah. if it's not fixable, then maybe you can't fix it at all. Eric, thanks very much for alerting me to that. We'll keep an eye on it. And I imagine there will be a few other people who know something about it as well.
0: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
7: stand by playback I'm not-
0: I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show.
5: Somebody at the White House has
1: been
0: smoking the devil's lettuce.
1: Honestly, provocative
0: talk radio.
1: More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women.
0: Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Now, here's your host.
1: Almost lost my wife, my 67
3: Corvette. And my cat,
0: Lars Larson, Larson. you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, of course, we're in election season. Lately, it seems like we're always in election season. And I thought we'd talk to Francis Rooney, who's a former member of Congress representing the 19th District in Florida and former ambassador to the Holy See. Uh, Francis, welcome back.
5: Thanks for having me back on.
3: So where are we headed now? Because you've written about this recently at The Hill, and you said now that the midterms are over, it's time for the Republican Party to come to terms with two concepts. One, the narrative that this is Donald Trump's party should be laid to rest. And second, Americans want representatives in office who will be pragmatic and deliver results and not empty rhetoric. I could agree with parts of both of those. Explain what you were trying to get across.
5: Well, I think that um, the... Uh, both the Senate and the House have shown in the recent years, many years, in fact, that they're incapable of dealing with the hard problems that face America. I mean, President Trump tried to deal with some of the hard problems. And I think that Congress has proven to be so sclerotic that we need the, the American people need to call on them to solve the problems, to get across the aisle, to um, deal with issues like immigration. OK, we need yep. a border. But we also need workers. And George Bush tried to solve that equation for securing the border and organizing a work permit program where they would be registered and we would know who they are and where they are at all times. It's not rocket science. You just have to have the political will to do it.
3: I'm just worried, Mr. Rooney, that if you said we're going to have a worker program and there will be licensed ones, we have some of that in the H-1 program that allows foreign workers to come in and do jobs. I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea because... It suggests that, well, some American workers are going to lose out uh, to the foreign workers uh, because the wage differential and the desire of foreign workers to come to America. The second thing is, I don't have any confidence that even if you created that system, that the rules would be enforced when you say, well, you can come here, work, and then you go home, wherever home is, that when people say, Or what? If I don't go home, what are you going to do? And so far for the last several decades, America has said, we're not going to do much of anything if you decide not to return.
5: Well, the difference is the system now is they come across the border. They move into some opaque shadows of life. They get a job somewhere, change their name probably. Nobody knows who they are. We have no ability to track them or deal with them. Bush's proposal in 2007 was they would enter they would get a registration number. I forget whether it's like Social Security or what. It wasn't getting benefits, but it was a some kind of where we know who you are number. And we would be able to keep track of them, and they would have to use that number to register for their employment and therefore have their taxes withheld, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a, that's a relatively accountable
1: system.
3: Yeah, except except every single time we're made this promise, is like, Lucy holding and pulling the football back from Charlie Brown in 1986 when the Congress not Ronald Reagan the Congress passed the amnesty and Ronald Reagan signed it later called it the biggest mistake of his career uh, they said we promise cross our hearts and hope to die that if you let in uh, I think it was estimated a million or a little over a million might have been a couple of million people uh, that we will start enforcing the border. I mean, the courts kept saying, well, you know, you missed the deadline, but we're going to include you anyway. So the courts kind of legislated and said, we're going to extend that amnesty from a couple of million to an estimated, well, Yale and I think one other university estimated it something like 22 to 30 million people that were here illegally before Joe Biden began his invasion. And they never did enforce the border, despite the fact that that was one of the promises. And yet the amnesty went on. No, they didn't.
5: And and if we go at this round again, it needs to be put together such that the border enforcement <clears throat> probably needs to precede the work permit.
3: I would agree with that because as well. And, the, you know, the other thing I could imagine is a sunset built into it, saying if we find that more than a certain number of people have stayed and have not left on schedule or have been we've lost track of them or whatever, that the entire system of allowing people in stops immediately until those criteria are met. Could you imagine a piece of legislation that might work that way?
5: That would be a good answer, too. Absolutely. It would have been a lot better had Reagan's amnesty bill had that in it. You know, there's another issue to this is asylum. And I introduced a bill with Jacob Chavitz when I was in the House to prohibit anybody from claiming asylum that was already in the United States. Great. You think about it, it. It's kind of an oxymoron that you claim asylum when you're already here. You need to claim asylum before you get here. And Trump did that with Title 42. And unfortunately, Biden just terminated Title 42, which I think is a terrible mistake.
3: Well, and by the way, one of the other pieces of international law, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Congressman, but international law says if I'm fleeing from persecution, a war, persecution for my race, religion, national origin, sexual preference, whatever, the minute I get to a country where I'm not being persecuted that will let me stay, I'm required to stay there. You don't get to say, well, yeah, thanks for letting me in, but I'd like to go to Germany or I'd like to go to Sweden. You stop right there. And yet most of that nine million that Joe Biden is allowed to to invade our country have not been coming from countries next door. They're coming from countries two or three countries away. Or in the case of the Chinese communists work, you know, the the fighting age males who are coming in. They're coming from the other side of the planet and then saying, but I'm here on asylum because that's the be all and get all get out of jail card.
5: You know, you're right about that. And they're coming through Mexico and that's part of what the Title 42 deal was so good about, is you can't claim asylum if you're in the United States. you got to claim it in the country that you came into. The other thing about asylum is the federal courts, like a lot of bad things, have expanded what is considered asylum. If you look at the asylum law, it's very narrow. Political or religious persecution. Not, do you have gangs in your country, or do they beat their wives, or You have a bad education system, none of that kind of stuff. No, because that describes an awful (laughs) lot of
3: planet Earth, doesn't it?
5: Yeah, and it's a very narrow thing, but it's been widened and expanded, and now we're in this huge mess. And the only way to stop it is to totally overhaul the law, police the border, and set up a work permit program where nobody comes in here that we don't want.
3: Well, let me ask you one more thing about this is not Donald Trump's party. I'm a Trump partisan. I support the president for the nomination and for the election next year. He's, according to the polls, he's got 57% of Republicans who say, I want him for the nominee. You got 52. He would win the election if it were held today, 52 to 42 over feeble old Joe. How is that not Donald Trump's party?
5: It is. I just did a CNN interview this afternoon, and we are talking about that, and I said, look, he has over 30% lead in all of the initial primaries right down to Super Tuesday. This thing is game, set, match, unless something radically uh, un- uh, unravels in the meantime.
3: I'd agree with you. And I'm still going to be interested in seeing what the uh, debaters do tonight when you got the seven also-rans and then a couple more who didn't make the cut for tonight's debate. Mr. Rooney, it's always a pleasure to have the you Canadian
5: on. Football. They're playing in the Canadian football league.
3: <laughs> That's a good way. That's a great metaphor for it. And since he was ambassador to the Holy See, he knows about metaphors and, and parables. Uh, Francis Rooney, former member of Congress from the 19th Congressional District of Florida, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars
0: Larson Show. lars follow him on twitter at lars larson show you're listening to the best of the lars larson show
3: welcome back to the program glad to have you on board and the other day we ran a soundbite for you in which uh, elon musk was on with joe rogan who does a great show and musk said that george soros wants to destroy western civilization and actually i agree with that wholeheartedly I've despised Soros for a good long time, not just because of what he does on a national level, but what he does on a local level, electing or getting the money in place to elect very liberal district attorneys who run for prosecutor and then decline to prosecute a whole bunch of criminal activities. I thought we'd talk about that with Scott Shepard, who's a fellow at the National Center for Public Policy Research and director for the Free Enterprise Project. Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks so much. Uh, Great to be with you again. I want to know from you because I sorrow seems like a mystery to me. In that I wonder why somebody who is so fabulously wealthy uh would want to basically set fire to the place where he lives and now calls himself <laughs> a citizen. It does. It I, I, I never understood people who set fire the house to, to the uh, set fire to the house that they live in. Well, and not only to the house they live in, but the house that they borrowed. Yeah, right. He didn't have to come
7: here. He could have gone anywhere in the world um, with with that money. That's literally true. He could have gone anywhere, but instead he comes here. And you know, Elon made a point that, and of course, he has he has Joe Rogan and, and X and and all the uh, the the voices in the world. But but uh, chimes with something I've been wondering for a long time. And the way I frame it is this. If I were trying to destroy not just the United States but the whole of the English-speaking world, what would I do? How would I have run my career differ- differently than the way that Elon Musk has? And I can't come up with any any real distinctions. I mean, he's been at this for a long time. When when John Major got in uh, got in, in 1992 in the after UK. the Thatcher years— uh, he he. The first thing he did was to uh, that Soros did was to to take out the British pound. It had been part of a added to a a European exchange rate mechanism, and it came in too high. But all the time with fiat currencies, you can wreck a currency. The one he chose at the beginning of a conservative administration was Britain's pound, and it cost Britain. It, it destroyed that administration for the next five years. It um. It cost Britain and its taxpayers billions and billions of dollars. And then he came here to the States. And what does he do? He funds uh, teaching the teachers how to create gender dysphoria in children so that that they can then hide that dysphoria from parents and create the the mutilation mills that we see in hospitals across the country. He funds um, election disruption techniques such as as vote harvesting and fights against voter id and other indicia of voter in, voting integrity so that none of us has faith in american elections anymore and sure. he most evilly he has focused on the great american cities getting elected lunatics who will not um who will not uh, arrest or convict criminals so that the people who live in those cities, largely minorities, live in fear and increasingly in resentment and hate which then gets blamed on white people generally, not on the DAs who are doing it, because any objection to anything Soros does gets called racism. And so you destroy the foundations of peace and respect and reliability and the ability to move forward uh, and have successful lives that are at the heart of any civilization and thereby tear it down. And then you, you add his, his lunacy at the border. I, it seems like step by step by step, this guy who calls himself a defender of open societies, is trying to destroy American society from the roots up.
3: And and maybe not just American, but worldwide. But, Scott, I always wonder, to what end? I mean, think about every uh, evil bad guy movie you've ever seen in the world, where the bad guy says, uh, you know, I'm going to do this, and it's going to lead to, and usually the result, I, I, I tell people, Scott, I know that you'd subscribe to this, but you might, uh, I tell people the, the primary motivators of every human activity on Earth are money, sex, and power, not necessarily in that order. And you say, okay, so we think of a conventional bad guy. I'm going to uh, blow up a bomb like an old Bond movie and contaminate all the gold at Fort Knox, and then all the other gold on the world that I've cornered the market on will be worth a lot more money. So you've got money, you've got sex, you've got power. He's got all three, and now he seeks to tear down the very institution and society around him and which which actually makes all that money uh and power valuable at all? To what end?
7: Well the only the and I've I've fought and fought and fought and been confused by this same question and I agree with you. The love of money isn't the root of all evil. It's the love of of, of of power over other independent adults—that's the root of all evil. And so he's got all the money, he's got all the power. He's 93. I don't want to think about the sex options. So <laughs> so, so, so 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 what's left for him? I what I really believe—the only thing I can come up with—is that he's motivated by the same goals as all the other fill in your own adjective and noun who go to Davos every year to the World Economic Forum. You know the the Klaus Schwab. The
3: people people who say, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy.
7: That's right. They'll own everything and we'll own uh, nothing and it's not we'll genuinely be happy. We'd better be happy or it's to a camp or something to that effect because these people think that democracy has failed. They think that what is, is required is for them and their genius to tell the rest of us how to live, and it's going to be a very constrained, narrow life. Well, they live like world nobility because they just think they're better than us. And and you t- here Yuval Hariri, who's one of the lunatics who goes there every year, he's genuinely talking about genetically enhancing the class of nobility that he considers himself part of, and the rest of us uh, taking the crumbs and, and living uh, as we're told. I just, and so what, the you only know, thing I can even... think is that... Even that, no, sorry,
3: image, no, that, even that image, no. Even that image kind of leaves me short because I think, okay, he lives like nobility, flies in a private jet, stays in nice hotels, eats nice meals. But all of that requires an operating society. You know, the jet fuel don't make it into your Gulf Stream if somebody is, isn't out there drilling for oil and refining the oil and delivering the gas, you know, the kerosene uh, to the airport to put in your jet. The, the steak doesn't make it to your dinner table unless somebody grows the, you know, the steer and then somebody slaughters it and somebody delivers the steak. They're destroying the things around them that would make them live like nobility, It'd be like a a king in a kingdom with a whole bunch of serfs and saying, but I'm going to burn the whole place down, but I still <laughs> expect dinner on the table at 6 o'clock tonight. Well, how does that happen? Well, I think that they
7: think that there will always be enough for them. They want us to live constrained lives. They still want to live the high life, um, but they don't want the rest of us having access to all their – their playgrounds and their opportunities so so they think they'll always be enough for, for them and and for why um, Soros isn't just content with what he's got and, and really wants to crush the rest of us the in, in greatest charity, my thought is that what happened to him I mean he he, he was born Jewish uh, in in areas that the Germans controlled, he became a Christian. But he was involved with the Nazis, and then it gets unclear. And I'm not calling him a Nazi, but he grew up under horrific conditions, and maybe he came to conclusions that that you know democracy led to Hitler. Whatever he figured out, he's got some insane notion that that the way that anybody can be fr- free, that, that even the, the gentility that, uh, that he thinks himself a part of um, uh, uh, can, can survive, is to be run. Uh, in in these ways, and that open society requires uh, strictly constrained uh, human behavior for 99% of us. And unconstrained behavior for the elites.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's the most charitable uh, explanation I can come up with. You know what, Scott? It sounds sicker than one of the Hannibal Lecter sequels because I thought, well, we're describing a guy who grew up under horrific conditions, and now that he's achieved that elite status and can have anything he wants, he wants to burn everything else down so nobody else gets it. That's Scott Shepard. Scott, thank you very much. Fellow at the National Center for Public Policy Research, the director of the Free Enterprise Project, and talking about the prospects of George Soros, 93 years old, richer than Midas, And now he's decided that he's going to lay waste to the society that we live in. It can't happen. It cannot happen. And yet he's done a lot to be able to make sure that it does. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
0: You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Lars Larson Show Kids too far away just tell Alexa play the Lars Larson show you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. I'm going to ask the uh, indulgence of my friend Carl Zabo, who's vice president of NetChoice, uh, who we plan to talk about social media with and the Biden administration controlling social media for the 24 election. Carl, welcome to the show, and can you give me just a moment because something big just came down?
8: Yeah, let's do it.
3: Okay, this is huge for people in the Second Amendment community, and I count myself in that group. A federal judge late on a Friday, of course, a federal judge in California has declared the state's ban on gun magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition unconstitutional, declaring that it violates the Second Amendment rights of firearms owners. That's one that a lot of us have been waiting for for a long time, and now it's happening. Of course, it'll it'll go up the chain uh, to the appeals courts and probably to the Supreme Court, but I think, uh, I think it's the right constitutional decision. It's hugely important because of its import in other states, uh, the 50 states, uh, where it's being misapplied by the anti-gunners, including people like Kamala Harris who's now heading up this crazy the uh, uh, Gun Violence Prevention Office, you know, that's more of the nonsense coming out of the White House. But Carl Szabo is with me, vice president of NetJoyce, Trade Association of Businesses that want free speech and free enterprise online. Carl, uh, what does is, what is your group see that the Biden administration is planning to do to try to control the social media through which an awful lot of Americans get almost all the information that they have about what's going on in the world?
8: Yeah, thanks, Lars. I mean, you were just talking about the complete disregard by this Biden administration of the Second Amendment. What I'm talking about is also the Biden administration's complete disregard of the First Amendment, and that protects our right to say what we want and to hear what we want without the government getting in the way. Now, the Biden administration has a long and fraught history with its attempts to control speech online. Uh, it was about a year ago. I know we have short memories these these days. But a year ago, we had the Biden Disinformation Governance Board. It was going to be run by uh, Mary Poppins, as you all may recall. Uh, recall. And by the way, don't worry. Uh She ended up finding a job in the White House nonetheless, despite uh, the did. closing down of the Disinformation Governance Board. So what we've actually been finding over the past couple of years is the Biden administration has been pressuring and coercing social media platforms to remove content that Biden doesn't like. And it finally came to light uh, as the attorneys generals of Louisiana and Missouri sued the Biden administration for violation of the First Amendment, in a case called Missouri v. Biden. It's now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, I think the Biden administration finally is starting to get the message that they can't just go out there and pressure social media platforms to remove speech but what they're trying to do now is instead of doing it through the white house they're now trying to do it through the biden 2024 political campaign and so what they just did was the biden administration hired up a bunch of about a hundred or so staffers and volunteers to monitor platforms uh, and trying to push back on disinformation and misinformation. And what they did is they actually brought on an individual from the White House who was infamous in the Facebook files for actually forcing social media platforms to remove content. So what we're seeing now is what the White House can't do because the Constitution stops it, the Biden administration is trying to do through its political campaign. And let's be clear, it's the same group of people so even though they changed the name from the White House to Biden 2024 for White House, it's still going to be a violation of the First Amendment, it's still pressuring of social media, and still control of free speech online in violation of the First Amendment. Well,
3: uh, Carl, let me, I'm not a lawyer. I don't think you're a lawyer either. But, but tell me this. Um, uh, over the years, I've talked to plenty of people in public office, and they've, they've always told me anything I can't do, as a member of the government, whether it's federal, state, or local, I'm not allowed to have it done by an by somebody acting as my agent. So if you say have a local prosecutor and you say that prosecutor can't go search that house, well can he go hire somebody to go search the house for him and get away with it? And and the answer is no, because then that person would be acting as his as, as his agent. Now I'm kind of spitballing this, but If if the president himself, who I assume at least allegedly directs his own presidential campaign, although I suspect it's not really Joe Biden, it's somebody else who's directing everything the guy does. But if his campaign goes off and acts as his agent to do things that would be unconstitutional if Joe Biden did them, but would be okay if a private organization or individual did it. But they're doing it at the direction of Joe Biden, who's still a government official. Is he allowed to do that?
8: Yeah, the, well, the good news is I, I I am actually an attorney, or at least I, I play one on TV. Uh, and so I teach uh, Fourth Amendment law is, is one of the things that I teach. And basically, the simple answer is, of course you can't. It's agency law. So you're exactly right with the example you use. The government, the, the police, for example, can't just enter your house without a warrant. Right. But they can't then say, well, I don't want to go get a warrant, so I'm going to just hire a private investigator to kick in the door for me. No, you can't do that because they are operating as your agent. You are completely liable, responsible, and all of the protections of the U.S. Constitution apply. Because otherwise, these protections would be meaningless if the government could just hire around it. And that seems to be exactly what we're seeing here, where the Biden administration is now going through a private industry rather than directly through whitehouse.gov to control and censor speech
3: online. And by, and by away, Carl, the way, Carl, I'm sorry, I, I, I diminished you by taking away your JD. I'm, I'm oh, glad no, you have it. No, you
8: know, don't worry. <laughs> it, it's more just the ridiculous well, amount of money I spent there. So
3: I, I'm sure, but I'm, I'm sure you didn't ask for anybody to forgive your uh, your loans. But but here's what I don't understand then. It's bad enough when a private company like Facebook or, or the old Twitter uh, agrees to do the bidding of the federal government. But this isn't that. This is something that is an organization, a multi-hundred million dollar, perhaps even a multi-billion dollar operation, the president's re-election campaign, that's doing it at his direction. And, and so... Is that even, uh, you know, say fundamentally different than say Twitter agreeing to censor on behalf of the federal government? This is the president's own organization, bought and paid for, and one not under the control of Congress, not under the control of the the courts. Well, for the most part, for the courts, he can just tell my his organization, I want you to do this, limit the free speech of Americans, and they can do it at his direction, and and he gets away with skirting around the First Amendment to the Constitution
8: it's it's actually quite terrifying. So, the when when President Biden is running in his personal capacity for re-election, there's supposed to be this clear line in the in the sand, right? This this uh what used to be called a Chinese wall between government life and his campaign life. But there's a reason why he can President Biden can go and host a dinner where he's charging 10,000 a plate on Broadway, and people will pay it. It's because, not because they are excited about the campaign, not because they want to donate to the campaign, but because they know that gives them an avenue to the White House to curry favor. And so the same thing is true when the Biden campaign goes out there and suggests, and I use heavy quotation marks, suggests the removal of disinformation that they see, aka truth
3: that Biden doesn't like. Absolutely right. That's Carl Zabo, Vice President of NetChoice, Trade Association of Businesses, trying to keep free speech going. Carl, thanks very much. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
0: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Sayers go to the head of the line at the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll confess that I'm kind of a law and order guy. Uh, you know, not because I'm thrilled with every law out there. I mean, there's some of them are kind of a pain in the backside. But I would like to see us have a law-abiding society and not an anarchist society as the so-called Antifa folks seem to want. But around this country, we've said such a dramatic rise in violent crime, and it's so disturbing to see it. I'd like to see it solved. So Nino Marchese joins me now, who's director of the Criminal Justice and Civil Justice Task Force at ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Nino, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Lawrence. So tell me are you on a speaker phone by any chance, Nino? Can I do you mind if I ask?
9: Uh no, I'm not. I have headphones have in.
3: Okay, no, don't worry about it. I just want my audience to hear you. So what do we do about this problem? I've thrown out my ideas. I want to hear yours.
9: Yeah, I mean, you you hit it right on the head. Uh, Americans are frustrated with it. Uh, We've seen a significant increase in in violent crime, uh, particularly starting at the the peak of the pandemic back in 2020. And uh, calls to defund the police are obviously not the solution. Um, and so ALEC has recently teamed up with a, a coalition effort uh, targeted to do exactly that and provide local and state-level uh, solutions to, to do so. And part of the four principles of this coalition, uh, known as the Public Safety Solutions for America Coalition, uh, the first one is to properly fund police. Um, I can dive into that a little more. The other principles is to make sure that law enforcement are focusing uh, their time and resources on solving serious violent crime, uh, composed to other you know, misdemeanors and lower-level offenses. Uh, we also want law enforcement to focus on evidence-based practices that are proven to reduce violent crime um, and to enact further on crime policies. So uh, we'll a lot to throw out you there.
3: Well, there is a lot. But, Nino, you know, let me ask you this. Does any of that change the game if the political folks in charge, since most cities have a police chief who's not elected he doesn't answer to the voters he answers the politicians that the politicians have to have the political will to say we're willing to have the police arrest people seek prosecution indict people a, a, a DA and a grand jury that are willing to actually bring charges and courts that are willing to convict and it seems like almost every piece of the system is broken you've got politicians who say I don't want you to make traffic stops because we try, honestly, to be blunt about it, we stop too many people of color. I say, I don't care who you're stopping. If you're stopping them for a legitimate reason and you happen to get a disproportionate share of one group or another, as long as the process is colorblind, I don't care charge people who are committing crimes with the crimes. And if you don't do traffic stops, then you know traffic stops are where the cops find an awful lot of wanted criminals, wanted for much more serious things than speeding or making a wrong left turn or something like that. But if you don't have politicians that are willing to do that, does any of what you've suggested make a difference?
9: Uh, no, I think you, you bring up a really important point, particularly with um, poor policy guidance and prosecutors' offices Um, you know, being hamstrung um, by those um, incentives and and especially tighter budgets. I mean, we saw the murder rate shot up uh, 34 percent between 2019 and 2022 nationally for a lot of the reasons that you're pointing out. Um, So there needs to be pressure put on political leaders and and law enforcement uh, to get the results that we want. But I think there's a deeper issue here uh, lying under everything you're talking about to compound on top of it. Uh, is that we're not utilizing our law enforcement in the best ways that we can. It's not that uh, they're targeting the wrong things necessarily, but we need to support them in ways which fund them better um, and focus their efforts more so on violent crime. Uh, We point to cities like Dallas and Boston. Uh, Dallas recently enacted a violence reduction plan um, which focuses law enforcement on uh, certain zones within a city that are known to be hotspots for criminal activity. This seems like common sense to everybody I talk to, an everyday American, um, to seasoned law enforcement, to state legislators, to U.S. congressmen. I mean, you want to target the hotspot areas that are known to have the most violent crime uh, rather than just looking to be out and, you know, stopping somebody for traffic tickets just to collect revenue. Uh, It's not to say that they shouldn't be, you know, uh, enforcing the law in those ways, but if you have only 5 percent of your police forces solving, you know, murder crimes, um, murder investigations, and that's not a good thing. And so Dallas saw murders decrease by 13% um, in 2021 and another 9% in 2022. Overall, violent crime dropped by over 5.5% in 2022. Boston in the 90s, they enacted a program called Operation Ceasefire, uh, where they also did similar um, law enforcement strategies to focus on those those hotspots. And, and they saw similar effects. They saw a decrease in monthly youth homicides by six percent Sixty-three percent. So, I think the main message that civilians and uh, community members need to be, um, you know, shouting really to their leaders and and, and politicians is is that we want to best utilize law enforcement to target the most serious crimes.
3: I would agree with you. I mean, you know, I. The only reason I mentioned traffic stops is because when you start pulling people over, you say, oh, you're wanted for rape, you're wanted for murder, you're wanted for something else. It's one of the best ways to catch bad guys. And enforcement on transit is another place that tends to produce a disproportionate share of, uh, of wanted criminals. And then you take them, you know, because otherwise they run around and they just think, well, Uh, nobody's stopping me. Here I am wanted on four or five warrants and and nobody bothers to do anything. I'm talking to Nino Marchese who's director of the Criminal Justice and Civil Justice Task Force at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. But you also hit on something I think is really important and that is focus on the parts of town where you have the biggest kinda problem. Maybe it's burglary over here, maybe it's rape over there, maybe it's we have a lot of murders over here. The problem is Nino without even looking at a particular city Would you guess that those areas are disproportionately low-income and disproportionately people of color?
9: I mean, I I don't think it's anybody's stretch of the imagination that those areas would be um, areas of disproportionate income levels. I mean, there's there's, uh, certainly a very strong correlation between uh, lower-income levels, specifically poverty-ridden levels, and criminal activity. Um, It doesn't mean that you're you're targeting poor people necessarily necessarily you're targeting the areas with the most violent crime. And these are data-backed, uh, evidence-backed approaches um, that have had resounding success in, in various municipalities all across the country. Uh, I listed Boston uh, previously. Dallas is currently doing this now. Um, Miami is taking up this effort. I mean, we should, it's not unique to any municipality. It's, it's all over where you have these hotspots. So um, as, as far wow. as disproportionately affecting people? I don't think so. And I think there's nobody who could uh, justifiably criticize that policing practice. We want the people, the dangerous criminals who are committing, you know, violent crime um, found and, and tried accordingly with due process, but ultimately brought to justice.
3: Yep. And by the way, Nino, I know from talking to the cops and criminologists, they'll tell you criminals tend to prey on the very neighborhoods that they live in. So if it's a low-income neighborhood, the people who get hurt the worst are those who can least afford to deal with the consequence. That's Nino Marchese from the American Legislative Exchange Council, and this is The Lars Larson Show.
0: You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. We're all on a... Okay,
7: it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by, play back. now.
0: I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show.
5: Somebody at the White
1: House has been smoking the devil's lettuce.
0: Honestly, provocative talk radio. More
1: than half the women in my cabinet, more than, more than half the team in my cabinet, more than half the women in, in my administration are women. Lars.
0: Our beloved Lars. republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67
3: Corvette, and my cat.
0: Lars Larson. you was listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. You know, the White House has been playing games not only with the border, not just by throwing the doors wide open on our southern border, but also by Joe Biden's decision just last week to issue to almost half a million Venezuelans. Number one, protection from deportation. Number two, the ability to go out and work and say, well, we're helping out all these migrants. Well, in my mind, if you came to America legally, you're a migrant. If you came illegally, then you're an illegal alien. I would imagine that Sam Peak would a- agree with that. Sam is the senior policy analyst for Americans for Prosperity. Sam, welcome back to the program. And what should we make of what the White House seems to be doing with not only the border, but with the policy toward illegal aliens once they're inside our country?
2: Hey,
10: thank you for having me. So... This issue is uh, essentially what Biden is doing is he's closing off legal immigration and he's trying to uh, do whatever he can uh, with the humanitarian pathways. You know, what he did with the Venezuelans is he granted nearly half a million of them what's called temporary protected status. By the way, it's not temporary. uh People have been in the country for uh, decades on temporary protected status, and he and uh, and he keeps using it. And he and uh, he just granted uh, Venezuelans temporary protected status a while ago. He uh, he used it to cover more people this time, and the reason why he did this is because he wanted them to have work permits, so they uh, so they could eventually uh, not uh, just be reliant on the uh, the local services that New York City is offering with their rights to shelter law. But he has been closing off the normal way that people come here to work, which uh, a lot of small businesses are using, uh, these work visas. And he raised the fees for those visas in order to subsidize people coming here for asylum.
3: And I, I want people to understand just how, I don't know, I don't know another way to describe it than nefarious because, When the president says, I'm going to raise the cost of H-1 and H-2A visas that people might use legitimately to bring people in legally to do work, and at the same time, I'm going to take a whole bunch of people who came in illegally and give them this fantastic reward, uh, protection from deportation and the right to go to work. And that means that when they go to work, they're going to displace any need or any demand or a lot of the demand uh, for the employers or with the employers who would otherwise be bringing H two A and H two B visas. I- am I reading that right?
10: Yeah, you're you're exactly right. You know, what, what the president is doing by trying to make these uh, these asylum pathways into work visa programs, he's like trying to uh, put a square peg into a round hole. You know, it's not. That's not what that system was designed for. And now we have a situation where you have a bunch of migrants huddled in New York City waiting for work permits. They have to wait 180 days for a work permit. Uh, Meanwhile, you have a lot of communities uh, in upstate New York, a lot of uh, small businesses that aren't able to hire the workers they need. The irony to all of this, too, is that Mayor Eric Adams tried to ship the migrants to all these upstate communities but they couldn't afford the cost. But at the same time they've got a labor shortage because Biden has made it harder for them to sponsor work visas.
3: I mean because Sam the way I read it uh, and maybe I'm being too simplistic about it but if I thought well I want to really mess up an economy I'm going to flood that economy and I'm going to use goods instead of labor although in the economy goods and labor somewhat interchangeable so if you say well I'm going to I'm going to just destroy this system If I flood the economy with cheap, illegal goods, then the legitimate goods won't sell and the people who sell them will go out of business. If I flood the economy with cheap, illegal labor, even if it's illegal and you've got all these employers who say, I got to have people here. I've got to have people to cook, to clean, to wait tables. I've got to have people to work in my hotel or my automobile repair shop or whatever business you happen to be in. And I've got this gigantic flood of people that the president has let come in and stay. And even if they're not legal, I'm going to go ahead and hire them. I'll hire them under the table. And I'll work it that way because they've given me no other choice. It's that or see my business go out of business. Is that about the picture?
10: That That's right. In the same way... That uh, that bans on guns only reward criminals who are willing to break the law, bans on legal immigration only reward employers who are hiring illegally. And so the ones who are willing to pay a fair wage and follow the law, go through all the paperwork, they're the ones getting penalized in the end.
3: So now you've got all these folks. I mean, right now, H-2A visas are 10% of America's entire ag workforce, as I understand the numbers, the piece you wrote for the New York Post. And New York State has 16,000 H-2 visas that were granted between October of of two years ago and uh, September of last year and so they they hire all these people that means all these venezuelans once they're able to work will be able to say well i'll just go get a job and and even if they're not legally able to do it They'll be able to say there are people out there who are going to hire me, and they'll pay me under the table. I'll make money under the table. I won't have to pay for any. Uh, I won't have to pay taxes. I won't have to pay uh, social security or anything else. So the farmer benefits by the illegal action. The illegal benefits from the illegal action. And the only folks who get hurt are all the folks trying to do it legally.
10: That's right. Uh, and with with the Venezuelans, even if they get the work permit. They would still be getting, they could, they're still not subject to the same uh, wage requirements that the people who are hired on work visas are paid. Cause if you want to hire someone on a work visa, you got to pay them the average wage that other workers are making in that area. And the other thing too is that when you open up these uh, systems that are for humanitarian pathways and you close the ones for, uh, for work, what you end up doing is you, you change the psychology of the people coming here because now they have to say, I have a, I have a humanitarian case. I'm persecuted when really what they wanted to be saying was, I, I am, I'm seeking economic opportunity. So you're kind of changing the psychology of the immigrants as well because you're creating, a, you're fostering a victim mentality instead of a mentality of, uh, of growth and of uh, providing for other people to help yourself.
3: You know, I almost hate to say that this is Joe Biden doing this, because honestly, Sam, I don't think Joe Biden's calling the shots. But whoever it is in the I mean, I just don't think it is. I think it's Obama's staffers who are now running the show. And Joe just knows when to show up for ice cream in the afternoon and to sign anything they put in front of him. But they know what the effect of this is going to be. This is not like they're just stumbling into stupid policies that hurt the country. They're doing this deliberately, aren't they? Or is there any indication that anybody could think this is the right way to handle this? I, I think that they are
10: doing it deliberately. Deliberately, I agree that it's not Joe calling the shots it's someone else. I think it's a lot of these labor activist groups who are running the show. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, the administration issued another regulation that requires farmers to hand over all the contact information of their employees to these labor groups, and the labor groups can just call them, and the labor groups can visit the farm and conduct work site inspections. It's, it's, it's madness.
3: That's Sam Peak. He is a senior policy analyst for Americans for Prosperity. Sam, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. You're
0: listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. exercising the right to free speech every day this is the Lars Larson show You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'm glad to be with you and glad to give a shout out to our friends in San Antonio, Texas, who listen to great talk radio on KTSA. That's AM 550. They catch Trey Ware, my friend, in the morning there in San Antonio. And, of course, you can hear my show there as well. Uh, Yesterday's poll went this way. Will Joe Biden's sanctions stop Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine I said no, so did 97% of you. Very small number of naysayers, 3% said they think that the sanctions will actually change things. And by the way, there's a new poll out from National Public Radio, which is the taxpayer funded left wing uh, mouthpiece for the Democrat Party. A record 56 percent of Americans disapprove of Joe Biden's job performance. A majority of 58 percent say they are worse off under Biden than a year ago and only 39 percent approve of his job performance. And on that note, you wonder how the fall elections are going to go. Eight six six, hey Lars. That's 866-439-5277. four three nine five two seven seven. Let's go first to Colton.
11: Hey Lars, how you doing? Very well. I was uh, I was calling in to talk about uh, religious freedom and the LGBTQ. I had emailed you quite a while ago about it, and right. I haven't had a chance to call in yet.
3: Well, I I have I can't I get about a thousand to eleven 1, hundred emails a day, so I'm sorry I haven't committed that one to memory. Make the argument for my audience. What's your argument?
11: Well, I just wanted your thoughts on uh, where a person's religious freedom would override uh, another person's uh, choices. <laughs> like, I, I am an LGBTQ member. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, so you're talking about sexu- uh,
3: sexual, sexual preference versus religious rights. Well, uh, religion is mentioned specifically, beliefs, you know, are mentioned specifically in the Constitution. Sex is not. Uh, but but having said that, you have a right to do whatever you want. It's, it isn't sex a private matter, or is sex something where you have to wear it on your sleeve?
11: No, I agree with you that it's a, a private matter.
3: Okay, uh, then why do you have to worry about your rights at that point? If you say, I have private behavior that I engage in, and I assume that most people's sexual behavior is private... You know, I don't run around telling stories about Tina and me. We've been married for 25 years this year, but I have no interest in sharing that with other people. I don't have to drive down the street with an equal sign on the back of my car. And I frankly don't even understand what that's all about. Could you tell me what that's all about? Why? I mean, I might put a an NRA sticker on my car, uh, although where I live, I'm likely to have my car uh, slashed, uh, get the tires slashed if I do that. But tell me. What is the point of advertising your sexual preference? Can you tell me?
11: Um, I don't do it myself. I don't have bumper stickers on my car, so I couldn't really
3: tell you. What do you, really what do you think um, of the people in your community who do? I know a number of gay people, and none of them have equal signs on their cars or anywhere else, and they don't wear their uh, sexual preference or sexual behavior uh, on their sleeve. They don't put it on a T-shirt or anywhere else. So so w- what are you asking? If I have religious beliefs and and your religious my religious beliefs say that your behavior is is shameful behavior am i allowed to believe that
11: yes you are but now in my case i don't have a religious belief so i don't view it as wrong so does your belief override my belief
3: well i'm not trying to override where would it override where would we in other words the famous example of how far my rights go is my right to swing my fist ends when it connects with your nose. So when my behavior starts to hit your behavior, the the fist thing is kind of a famous example. I I can't remember who did it. I think it was a judge who said my my right to swing my fist ends where it connects with your nose. But how does my religious belief interfere with your private sexual behavior?
11: So the thing I was thinking of is like sweet cakes, where they
10: said they weren't going to provide a... Yeah, and, okay. and the bakery, uh, tend, Okay,
3: just so everybody understands, there was a bakery, and the bakery served all kinds of people, gay, straight, men, women, black, white, and everything else. And one day, somebody came in and said... Uh, we, want a, we want a wedding cake made. We want you to engage in creating a unique cake for us. Now, that's. For, I could argue that's a form of speech. Art takes lots and lots of different forms. My speech is just plain old speech, but sometimes I write it down on paper. But if somebody said to me, Lars, I'd like you to write some stuff for my website. And I said, well, what's your website about? And they say, no, it's about uh, my racist beliefs or whatever. I'd say, well, I have no interest in being involved in that. That conflicts with my beliefs. So... When a customer came to them and said, we want you to make a cake that celebrates a gay wedding, which, by the way, at the time that case first erupted, um, the gay marriage at that point was illegal. It, it was not legal. The Supreme Court had not decided Oberg fell yet. And I still don't think the Supreme Court should have been able to do what they did. But having said that, they said, we're not, we will sell you a cake, but we're not going to make a special cake to celebrate something that we deeply disagree with. Now, should they have had the right to do that? And if so, who were they discriminating against? Were they discriminating against a gay person? Or are they saying, we don't want to take part in a particular event that we don't believe in?
11: Well, I guess in that case, since they're providing a service to the public, um, like I was raised in a religion, and as that
3: religion- Well, let me something give you a service to didn't... the public, Colton. Let me give you a service. You open a hotel. Now you can't turn people away because they're black or because they're white or brown. You can't turn them away because they're Jewish or Catholic or Muslim. You can't do any of that. That's prohibited because you're providing a service. Somebody comes to you and says, "We'd like to use your hotel as a gathering for our Nazi group." Can they say, "We don't believe in that stuff. That violates our beliefs. We don't we, we don't want you to we don't want you to hold your event at our place." Can they turn them away for that? Um, I wouldn't, I guess so. I would say yes. So if somebody says, look, I'm I've that, deeply that, held that, that's Christian
4: harm
11: someone. What's that? Well, I believe that's something, you know, that's a well, belief
3: but that but hold, hold on. Colton. if so. you say it harms somebody every time anybody is turned away from a business, it's it causes harm to somebody. I mean, if somebody says, I yeah. want to stay in your hotel and you say, no, you can't stay in my hotel. Uh, that that they have to go find another hotel, which The the gay people who brought the the case against the Sweet Cakes Bakery were not harmed. They could have gone down the street to any number of other bakeries, or they could have said, yeah, make us a cake and we'll decorate it ourselves because the decoration is what was at issue, not the cake itself. They had gay customers. They sold cakes and cupcakes and everything else to people who are gay. So they didn't discriminate against a gay person. They said, we choose not to take part in making a special cake for celebration of a particular uh, event because we disagree with it. It it runs counter to our. I've used the example, Colton, I occasionally go hunting and I've been involved to go. uh, I've been invited to go hog hunting. Right. So say I I go hog. I've never gone. I'd like to go. I've gone deer hunting and elk hunting and all kinds of other things. If I go out and I hunt uh, a feral pig and then I take that that pig carcass. No, because I want to I want to get the meat. And I take that pig to a uh, a, a halal, uh, a Muslim butcher shop, and there are Muslim butcher shops. And I say, I want you to butcher this pig. What do you think they're going to tell me? Probably no. Yeah, and why? And why are they telling me no? Well, because of their religious beliefs. Because butchering a pig would violate their... Now, should they have the right to to say, we're not going to butcher your pig, Lars, even though we offer butchering services, bring us a goat. Bring us a cow, bring us anything else. We'll butcher it, a sheep, but we will not butcher your pig. Do they have a right to turn me down because of their religious beliefs?
11: Um, I'm not sure. See, my viewpoint on that would be is if something went against your religion, you shouldn't be involved in something where that might come up.
3: Well, hold on. Almost anything could involve your religion. It it really could because we now have cases, I think one of them is coming to the Supremes, that involves website design. Because somebody came into a website designer and said, "I'd like you to design uh, something to celebrate our gay marriage," and uh, that one is coming to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they say you have to make it. And you say, "But it violates my beliefs," so you should stay out of every business in which beliefs could come up. Because I don't know if we could name a business where where your be- beliefs might come up. Can you name one? Photography. No, I guess flowers, not. making cupcakes. All of those things, your religious beliefs may come to the fore, and yet on one hand you're willing to say the Muslim butcher shop can turn me down to butcher a pig, but the cake shop run by the Christians cannot turn people down for making a gay wedding cake. Interesting comparison. But like I said, double standards are none at all.
0: You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
5: Call
7: men and the people who love them.
0: Casting the sound of freedom, here's Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your calls shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. And as always, we promise to put naysayers to the head of the line, something I think that Professor Bill Jacobson would agree with. He is the founder of the law blog Legal Insurrection, a clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell University, a Cornell law school. Uh, professor, good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. So I work in the media and I won't take this personally, but the mainstream media and maybe maybe the rest of us have a problem with credibility right now with the American public, don't we?
12: That's right. Gallup just came out with their survey that they do every year for 20, 30 years and it's I think an all-time low for media. They don't have one cl- category for media. It's TV media and a couple of different, but no matter how you slice it, the media is pretty much at the bottom of institutions that have support in the U.S.
3: Ranking even below Congress, because that's a low bar. Well,
12: I think they're right about They're, they're competing for the bottom position. Let's put it that way. Very low. I forget what the, the difference was. The, Congress might be a little lower, but they're, they're basically at the bottom. And that's not how it's always been. Of course, you know, the, what's going on now is a total narrative-driven mainstream media, That's all that really seems to matter is the headline and the reaction. And, you know, if the truth follows eventually, so be it. But people have moved on by the time that happens.
3: You know, one of the concerns I've got is that this isn't just an issue for a business, because that's what media is in America. It's a business. But it's an institution that people depend on, because I think the founders were pretty clear about warning us, if you don't have a well-informed public, you really can't maintain the republic that we have.
12: Yeah, well, I think we are in terms of media coverage of events, really, in a post-truth world that, if you remember, you know, during the Trump years in particular, we always used to follow the, you know, 24 to 72 hour rule. Whatever the big breaking news was going to be about Trump, whatever the big connection to Russia was going to be about Trump, usually it completely fell apart in about 24 to 48 hours. So if you gave it 72 hours, then it would fall apart. And that's really how you have to do it. They just roll out one after the other, of these hit pieces uh, on Republicans, these narrative pieces. And by the time the truth comes out, days later, they've already moved on to the next one. It's a a cycle of really sort of panic, sort of uh, frenzy-driven media coverage.
3: And that's the problem. I'm talking to Professor Bill and You can find him at Legal Insurrection, which is great reading every day of the week. But Tell me this, Professor, before we get to the question of uh, you know how this could get fixed and whether it's likely to get fixed, um, how did they get here to begin with? Because as a business, you'd think they would care an awful lot about maintaining their credibility, care less about keeping their politician friends happy, because if you lose your credibility, then your business goes down and all of the billions of dollars that are tied up in it go away as well. I mean, the media has a, a self-interest in trying to maintain its credibility. Or does it?
12: Well, I think more, particularly in the Internet age, things are driven by clicks and eyeballs and traffic. I think there's real pressures that come from that. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, who becomes journalists? It's not, you know, your average person. It's people who, for the most part, are ideologically driven and people who, for the most part, are left of center or far left and that nobody else really, because journalism doesn't pay very well. You don't get paid a lot as a reporter. And so who's going to do this? It's people who are doing it for some other reason. In many ways, it's very similar to academia, that it's self-selecting. The people who go into academia and the people who go into journalism already have a particular viewpoint, and they view part of their job responsibility as to be activism and to be uh, persuasive and to be – Somebody who influences the public, so it's really a perverse circle, and it's very dangerous. And it's at the point right now where I think the media is in crisis because it doesn't—it's lost its credibility. The traditional news media has lost its credibility, and they don't know what's there to replace it.
3: Well, so tell me this, Professor. I've always been a big believer in the marketplace, that if there's a demand for something, that somebody will show up to supply it. And I'm talking about legal products, not illegal products like methamphetamine, although now it turns out we've got China to supply that as well, uh, uh, meth or fentanyl or whatever. But, but isn't there a marketplace hole there? You know, like like the town that only has hamburger stands for fast food and somebody says, hey, I'm going to go in and sell tacos. I'm going to sell them like crazy. That if the whole media landscape, for the most part, tilts to the left, pushes political agendas and is not exactly honest, that it seems like that would be a tremendous opportunity for some actor to come in and supply a product that was both honest and trustworthy and perhaps a little right of center, which I thought Fox did, but they've drifted to the left as well. Uh, why isn't the marketplace working in the way it should to do that?
12: Well, I think you have to look at different segments. I think the marketplace has created talk radio, which is wildly popular, and mostly, not exclusively, but mostly is a, a right-of-center phenomenon. And then uh, you do have cable, where you know, people may be critical of Fox News, that it's, it's you know, moved either the center or the left, but as in the range of TV networks, it is clearly the most right of the mainstream TV networks, and it's doing far better than the the liberal ones. So I think the uh, reality is that the market will reward that. And I think that's though also why you have this phenomenon of what's often called deplatforming or cancel culture. It is an attempt to prevent entrance into that marketplace. And the classic example, maybe the worst example, is Parler. We had more traffic at legal insurrection from Parler than we did from Twitter and Facebook combined. And the big tech companies conspired to take Parler down through the false accusation that the January 6th riot was organized on Parler. It wasn't. That's very clear. And so Google and Apple kicked them out of their app stores, which eliminates a huge market. And then Amazon Web Services kicked them off their hosting service with about 24 or 48 hours' notice, and they essentially disappeared from the, the uh, Internet. And uh, Parler was a big challenger to Twitter. Everybody said, well, if you don't like the way Twitter runs this business, go create your own. Well, Parler did. And it just so happens, a very under, underreported fact, it was reported that about a month before Amazon Web Services kicked out Parler, they struck a big hosting deal with Twitter so amazon web services eliminated one of twitter's bigger biggest competitors after having just struck a deal with twitter to host uh, for the first time to host twitter or parts of twitter so it's a very pernicious thing so yes there is a marketplace for it there are ideas but that's why you have this phenomenon of deplatforming which is trying to prevent people from becoming
3: competitors Okay, so let me ask you a question about the Twitter parlor thing. And I'll say, we had a Twitter, we had a parlor account. We still have a Twitter account. I don't like Twitter very much. Um, but our parlor account just evaporated along with all the people who were following us on parlor. I liked parlor a lot. But what you just described sounds like a great antitrust case, doesn't it? Uh, is somebody going to bring an antitrust case to say, hey, you you want you you struck a deal with Twitter and then you went out and destroyed one of Twitter's competitors. Uh, you know that that's that can't be legal or is it?
12: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you'd need to know more of it. Of course, Amazon Web Services would say one had nothing to do with the other, but it's just coincidence that one followed the other. Uh, and, and so, I, I think I don't know if Parler looked into that at all. I think they did sue Amazon Web Services. But, you know, when you sign on with these hosting companies and these cloud companies and you click that you've read the agreement, well, you know, those agreements are written to protect them. Okay, (laughs) they're not negotiable. So I think Amazon said, hey, we had a right to do it. Look at, you know, look at paragraph 432, sub A, sub 3. Okay, and we had the right to do it. So I don't know if that went anywhere, but uh, it was. Tremendously damaging. It is a parlor. It took them about two months to come back because when you have a user base of 10 million people or 20 million people, you can't just switch hosting companies.
3: No, you can't. That's Bill Jacobson. He's a founder of the law blog Legal Insurrection, clinical professor of law at Cornell Law School. Professor, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
0: You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. <laughs> Be honest, you're listening because you like what you hear, right? Lars Larson, you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson show. It's a pleasure to be with you and I'm always glad to get your calls. You know, I'm a supporter of the police, but I want the police to do their job. Well, now there's talk of forming a federal police force, and I think I find it just as disturbing as Bob Barr does. Bob, of course, is a former CIA analyst, member of the U.S. Congress, and the newly elected first vice president of the board of the National Rifle Association, of which I'm a member, so I have a dog in the fight, and I own guns, so I have two dogs in the fight. Bob, welcome back.
13: Thank you, Lars. Great, uh, great to be with you, and I really appreciate uh, you bringing up this topic of a national police force, because it seems to be gaining at least some degree of currency uh, by the far left. You know, back in the day when I was uh, coming up through college and working for the CIA as a young analyst, and even at the time I was U.S. attorney here in Atlanta, you know, the Democrat Party, uh, generally speaking, stood against abusive federal power and against abusive federal law enforcement. For example, when I was in the House back in the late 90s, I worked closely with the ACLU against government abuses, surveillance and so forth. But nowadays, the left has seized on this notion of a national police force not to do what we need the police to do, and that is to uh, protect us against the massive rioting and arsonists that we've seen in recent years. They want a national police force to do a better job of reining in the
3: far right. Now, you're, you're saying this is aimed specifically at conservatism and most especially at the folks who identify as MAGA, which I would count myself in that group. I identify as somebody who believes in making America great again, that this is what it's aimed at, not getting a handle on real crime like murder, rape, robbery, assault, looting arson and the like that we've seen so much of in the last couple of years could this actually happen under our federal system of government
13: it well it can it shouldn't and our founders if one reads the constitution and reads the federalist papers clearly were would be aghast and against such a move but you look at some of the materials now that are out there, and I, I read recently a, uh, an article by a couple of uh, academicians that appeared in a political magazine about uh, a national police force, and it is very clear the language that they use uh, would be to use a national police force to target, and I'm quoting here, hyperbolic reactions of far-right Republican figures and media commentators white supremacist groups, bellicose conservative agendas, (laughs) MAGA movements, radical Republicans. I mean, this is the language they use. So it is clear that the national police force that the left wants now would be to target conservatives generally and MAGA in particular.
3: Well, and it sounds like from the description you just read, I heard myself in there at least three or four times. But. Would they even? I mean, let's say, uh, let's. I, and I don't even know what they'd tag it onto, whether it'd be the FBI or the U.S. Marshals or whatever. But during all the riots following George Floyd's death, um, there were states, especially the blue states, that said, "Hey, you federal age, you know, U.S. Marshals, FBI, and all that. You can only protect federal property in our state. You have no authority outside of that, unless we invite you." And that's what the blue state said. I know that because our broadcast studios are two blocks away from what was one of the biggest ground zeroes during the riots nationwide. And that was the Marco Hatfield Federal Courthouse. And the local authorities said, you feds have no business protecting anything but that building and other federal buildings. This would also require that the states would have to say yes to it, wouldn't it?
13: I mean, and, and, and this sort of warped uh, notion of the left, Yeah. And I remember during that same era, I remember seeing pictures. I wasn't in Washington, D.C. at the time, but I saw news media pictures of federal law enforcement officers, some in uniform in front of the White House, uh, facing demonstrators. And several of these, I think they were FBI agents, were kneeling in solidarity with the protesters. So that gives one a clear indication of where A lot of the sympathies of federal law enforcement officers lie these days. So saying, well, as these authors do, since we have all of these law enforcement agencies out there and they're not properly or fully coordinating with each other, we need to expand that. I mean, just think of the abuses that we already have in federal law enforcement with partisan leadership that would be expanded greatly if we brought all of this together with a national police force, law enforcement focus, it would be disastrous, uh, not only dangerous, but it would completely undercut the very notion of what you indicated, and that is our federal system of government, not a national system of government.
3: Well, and no no real local input. I mean, they they might say, well, you have... You can tell us what you like and what you don't like, but ultimately, a federal police force would be directed by either the president, head of the executive branch, and that and whatever he decides is important is what gets enforced. And if he decides it's not important to go after certain things, so it could be directed very politically from the White House alone. I mean, not even like once you set it up, if the Congress authorized it, once it's once the federal police force is out there, the person who's in charge of it is whoever happens to be sitting in the Oval Office, right?
13: Absolutely correct. And even the heads of the different agencies that might report to a national police director, they're not elected by the people. Uh, some of them may be appointed by the Senate, but the public has no real input on those kind of things. And others, for example, the head of the FBI, there's no public input whatsoever on, uh, on that individual. So it completely cuts out the, the, the citizenry from the decision-making, and it completely undercuts the power of the states, which is where political power, in the view of our framers, was intended to and
3: should reside. You know what it reminds me of, Bob, is is Germany because Germany has a federal police force. I mean, they have a little teeny bit of local police, but for the most part, they're now they're a much smaller place than the United States. But they're they're one big federal police force directed from Berlin, right?
13: Right, and uh, most countries are like that. In England, for example, and the author the authors of this piece in Politico that I refer to. They lament the fact that, well, the uh, U.K. has this centralized police force and we don't. Hey, guys, we <laughs> broke away from England specifically <laughs> because of
3: that type of national force. Absolutely right. Bob, it sounds like the OMB may be saying, hey, maybe we can just kick the can down the road on the debt ceiling. A bit. I wish we had time to talk about that with you, but we so appreciate your point of view. Thanks a lot, Bob. Always a pleasure. That is Bob Barr, former member of Congress and newly elected first vice president to the board of directors of the NRA. And yes, I got a bias there. We'll get to your phone calls and emails in the next segment. 866 Hey Lars and send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the Lars Larson show. You're
0: listening to the best of the Lars Larson show. The Lars Larson
2: show.